Chapter 6, Part 3 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Election of 1892, Part 3. The Democratic National Convention met at Chicago on June 21st with Mr. William L. Wilson of West Virginia as its permanent president. Events had taken an unexpected turn. Senator Hill's snap convention of the preceding February had proved to be a political boomerang. Its action, so far from coercing the Democrats of other states, had inspired them with indignation toward Mr. Hill and with enthusiasm for Mr. Cleveland. They regarded the maneuver as a most unworthy trick. The prominence of Tammany in the whole proceeding had repelled them, for Tammany had always been mistrusted by the democracy at large, particularly in the West. Therefore, a very strong drift had at once set in toward Mr. Cleveland's candidacy. In the words of General Bragg, uttered in 1884, men loved him most of all for the enemies that he had made. State after state had instructed its delegates to vote for him, and it was already plain that he would have a sure majority in the convention at Chicago. Democratic usage, however, required a two-thirds vote to effect a nomination, and therefore Senator Hill did not yet despair. He might not himself win, but he felt that he could at least defeat his rival and give the nomination to another candidate. Even Mr. Cleveland's friends were still afraid to hope. Mr. Tracy of New York met Colonel Morrison of Illinois in Washington a day or two before the convention had assembled. Morrison, said he, we are going to nominate Cleveland or die. Maybe, returned Morrison, but are you certain that you are not going to do both? When the convention met, however, the tide for Cleveland was running like a mill-race. His portraits were displayed all over the city. His badges were on the breasts of more than half the delegates. His name alone seemed to be in the mouth of everyone. A feeling of buoyant confidence inspired the great crowds which poured into Chicago. A sense of coming victory was in the air. The democracy was at last in fighting trim and had fixed upon a leader of whose invincibility no doubt was felt. Ex-Secretary Whitney was in charge of Mr. Cleveland's canvas. He had come to Chicago expecting to make an uphill fight, but he found himself at once the master of the situation. "'I can't keep the votes back,' said he to an intimate friend. "'They tumble in at the windows as well as at the doors.' On June 20th, the day before the convention was opened, even the New York Sun grudgingly admitted that Cleveland's nomination was quite probable." The immense wigwam at Chicago with its amphitheater roped off like a prize ring was packed to suffocation. Mr. Wilson, whose voice was weak and whose presence was unimpressive, could not control the delegates, who sang and cheered and had things wholly their own way. In the committee which drafted the platform there was a sharp struggle over its tariff plank. The conservatives of the committee inserted a shifty and ambiguous declaration, such as had been usual in other years, and being in the majority they had adopted it. No sooner had it been read to the convention, however, than it was greeted with tempestuous derision. The delegates were in an aggressive mood. They would have no compromise, no evasion of a dominant issue, and so, by a great majority, the plank as reported was stricken out and a substitute adopted, bolder than any declaration on the subject of the tariff which a democratic convention had ever ventured to put forth. It began. We denounce Republican protection as a fraud, a robbery of the great majority of the American people for the benefit of the few. 
we declare it to be a fundamental principle of the Democratic Party that the federal government has no constitutional power to impose and collect tariff duties except for the purposes of revenue only, and we demand that the collection of such taxes shall be limited to the necessities of the government when honestly and economically administered. In vigorous phrase, it went on to speak of the McKinley Tariff Law as the culminating atrocity of class legislation. It pledged the party to give the people free raw materials and cheaper manufactured goods. It declared that since the McKinley Tariff had gone into operation, wages had been lowered in many trades, with resulting strikes and general distress. It called attention to the fact that after thirty years of high protection, the homes and farms of the country have become burdened with a real estate mortgage of over $2,500,000,000, and it denounced a policy which fosters no industry so much as it does that of the sheriff. The convention had now taken the bit between its teeth and was beyond control. The Hill leaders fought vainly to secure delay. The discussion of the platform had lasted until nearly midnight, and an attempt was made to adjourn the convention until the following day. The motion was shouted down amid indescribable uproar. The delegates refused to adjourn before the candidates were nominated. The customary nominating speeches were then made. Mr. Cleveland's name was presented by Governor Abbott of New Jersey and the name of Senator Hill by Mr. William C. DeWitt of New York. Other candidates were put in nomination, among them Governor Boys of Iowa, Senator Gorman of Maryland, and Mr. Stevenson of Illinois. It was now two o'clock in the morning, but the convention showed no signs of weariness. The vote was certain to be taken before daybreak. The friends of Mr. Hale, therefore, played their trump card, the threat that Mr. Cleveland could not possibly be elected without the vote of his own state. To drive home the assertion with all possible point and power, they had reserved their ablest speaker until this moment. At 2.15 a.m., the bulky form of Mr. Bork Cochrane was seen emerging from the mass of delegates and moving toward the platform. Mr. Cochrane was an Irishman by birth who had come to New York as a young man and had been admitted to the bar, achieving great success as a jury lawyer. Fluent of speech, witty, and adroit, he was a natural rhetorician and could be either denunciatory or persuasive with great effect. In after years he received the nickname of the Mulligan Guard Demosthenes because his eloquence was almost always at the disposal of Tammany Hall. Nevertheless, he was a superb stump speaker, and even the Cleveland men became hushed and silent to catch his opening words. Mr. Cochran had some of the gifts of a very clever actor. As he faced his audience he seemed languid, heavy-eyed, and utterly exhausted. A feeling of sympathy won him the goodwill of the convention before he spoke a word. Then, in a voice that was rich and resonant, he uttered an earnest plea for harmony, making it appear that harmony could be achieved only by dropping Mr. Cleveland as a candidate. Here he spoke with perfect tact, anxious to offend no prejudice. For the personality of Mr. Cleveland he entertained, so he said, the most profound respect. I feel for him a personal friendship. I oppose him in this convention solely because he stands between the Democratic Party and the light of victory. He spoke of the great tidal wave of 1890, which had overflowed the force bill and repudiated McKinleyism. He alluded to the service which Mr. Hill had rendered in that fight, and to the importance of New York as a factor in the election which was imminent. Pennsylvania boasts, he then went on, that she has never made a threat in a convention. I ask you, what could Pennsylvania threaten? 
Pennsylvania in November, with her 32 electoral votes, will thrust the democracy of New York into the ditch dug for it here. I believe that Mr. Cleveland is a popular man. Applause. A most popular man. Increased applause. Let me now add that he is a man of most extraordinary popularity on every day of the year except election day. Uproar. He is popular in Republican states because his democracy is not offensive to Republicans. I oppose him in this convention because his candidacy imperils the success which now comes to us with bright, alluring prospects. I appeal to you to pause now, before this contemplated action is taken, before this invasion is made complete. Build, gentlemen, build your hopes of success, not upon the shifting sands of political professions. Build it upon the solid rock of democratic harmony, of democratic unity, and of democratic enthusiasm. Then the people in whom you have trusted will repay your confidence with majorities so decisive that Republican prospects throughout the Union will receive a completer check even than they have received in the state whose triumphant democracy now asks you only for permission to win for you a Democratic victory in November. Note 27, page 295 but Mr. Cochrane's eloquence was unable to stem the tide. In the early hours of the morning, the roll of the convention was called, and long before the last delegation had responded, it was plain to everyone that Mr. Cleveland had secured not merely a bare majority, but more than the two-thirds necessary to make him his party's candidate. The record showed that 617 votes were cast for him, ten more than were required, while Senator Hill received only 114 Governor Boyce, 103, and Senator Gorman, 36. Amid a scene of tumultuous enthusiasm, with bands blaring and banners waving, the galleries joined with the excited partisans upon the floor in chanting a song which had struck the fancy of the public. Note 28, page 295. Grover, Grover, four more years of Grover. In he comes, out they go, then we'll be in Clover. On the following day, to please the old-fashioned party men, Mr. Adlai E. Stevenson of Illinois was nominated for the vice-presidency. Another candidate was said to be more acceptable to Mr. Cleveland, but just before the balloting began, a serious personal scandal regarding him became known to the delegates and served to prevent his nomination. It was characteristic of Mr. Cleveland that on the night when his political fate was hanging in the balance, he should have been chatting quietly in a friend's library, far distant from the telegraph wires and quite out of reach even of his own excited partisans. When the news was brought to him the next morning, he received it with the same tranquility that had marked his bearing ever since his retirement from office. The same news was heard in a very different spirit by Mr. Dana of the Sun. He had pinned his faith on Hill up to the last moment, hoping against hope. In his paper for June 22nd, he had styled Hill, that heroic and powerful statesman, a faithful, fearless, and successful champion. Now that Mr. Cleveland had been nominated, Dana was in a dreadful quandary. He hated Cleveland and everything for which Cleveland stood, yet not to support the nominee of the Democratic Party would probably mean for himself and for his paper financial ruin. Furthermore, there was no other party open to him. And so he reversed himself in a fashion so awkward and so insincere as to excite the mirth of everyone. Pretending that Republican success would mean the enactment of a force bill, he came out for Cleveland on June 24th, saying that the one supreme issue was 
The question whether those southern states which have inherited a Negro population surpassing the number of their white citizens shall, by federal law and federal military force, be subjected to the political domination of the Negroes, to Negro legislatures, Negro governors, and Negro judges in their courts, or whether they shall continue to be governed by white men as now. Better vote for the liberty and the white government of the southern states, even if the candidate were the devil himself, rather than consent to the election of respectable Benjamin Harrison with a force bill in his pocket. And so, throughout the ensuing campaign, Mr. Dana devoted himself to writing vociferous leaders around his watchwords, no force bill, no Negro domination. The populists held their national convention at Omaha on July 2nd and nominated for the presidency General James B. Weaver of Iowa. Note 29, page 297 and for the vice-presidency Mr. James G. Field of Virginia. Their platform accused both of the older parties of subserviency to the capitalists, declaring that, From the same prolific womb of governmental injustice we breed the two great classes of tramps and millionaires. It demanded, among other things, the free and unlimited coinage of silver and gold at the ratio of sixteen to one, a graduated income tax, the establishment of postal savings banks, and the ownership by the government of railroads, telegraphs, and telephones. Few political campaigns in American history have been conducted upon so high a plane as that which followed in the summer and autumn of 1892. President Harrison said in a spirit that did him honor, I desire this campaign to be one of republicanism and not one of personalities. A very dignified campaign it was. Even the speakers upon the stump alluded to their opponents in terms of personal respect. No scandals were unearthed, and no sensational episodes occurred, like that of the Murchison letter. The main fight between the two great parties was fought out upon the issue of the tariff. For the first time in its history, the Republican Party was on the defensive. In 1884, it had been obliged to defend the record of Mr. Blaine, but its own pass was held to be unassailable. Now the inequalities of the McKinley tariff were vigorously attacked by every Democratic speaker, and the explanation and defense of them taxed the ingenuity of the Republicans. Higher prices and lower wages were, indeed, strong Democratic arguments. President Harrison's own contribution to political discussion consisted of the sapient remark, A cheap coat means a cheap man under the coat. An epigram which was about as convincing as Dr. Johnson's burlesque line, who drives fat oxen must himself be fat. By tacit consent, both Republicans and Democrats said very little about the silver question. The populists, on the other hand, preached the doctrine of free silver with great vigor and enthusiasm. In some states of the West and South, coalitions were made with the populist party. Thus, in Louisiana, the Republicans divided their electoral ticket evenly with the populists. In Oregon, one populist elector was placed upon the Democratic ticket, and in Minnesota, both Democrats and populists united upon four electors. In five states, Colorado, Idaho, Kansas, North Dakota, and Wyoming, the Democrats nominated no electoral ticket at all, but voted for the populistic candidates. The object of this was not merely to defeat the Republicans at the polls, it was thought possible that enough populist electors might be elected to prevent any party from having a clear majority in the electoral college. In that event, the election would be thrown into the House of Representatives. Note 30, page 299. Voting by states, in which case the Democrats would have a clear majority. 
As the summer drew near its end, both parties were hopeful, yet both believed that the result would be very close. One feature of the election would be novel. For the first time it was recognized that money could no more be used in directly bribing voters. Of the 44 states of the Union, 35 had adopted some form of the Australian ballot, thus enabling the voter to cast his vote in secrecy. As was written at the time, no blocks of five can be marched to the polls on election day with their ballots held in sight of the man who has bought them till they are dropped into the ballot boxes. What the same isolation will accomplish in great manufacturing centers is equally obvious. No working man need fear loss of employment if he votes in accordance with his own beliefs and against the interests of his employer, for his employer cannot see how he votes. In the list of the 35 states which have the new systems are to be found all the so-called doubtful states and all those states in the Northwest in which the tariff reform sentiment has made such havoc with old-time Republican majorities. In the great cities of the land there is another gain from the new system which is as important as that of the secret ballot. Trading and deals will be practically impossible because of the difficulties which are thrown in the way. Other agencies for securing votes must be sought, and other managers and professional corruptionists and traders must be put at the head of the party organizations to conduct the campaign. Note 31, page 299. Something which occurred in Pennsylvania during this year did much to endanger the prospects of Republican success. In June, the Carnegie Steel Company at Homestead reduced the wages of its employees. A trade organization known as the Amalgamated Steel and Iron Workers sought to intercede, but the Carnegie Company refused to recognize it and soon afterwards ordered a shutdown and closed its works, throwing thousands of men out of employment. These men, a majority of whom had served the company long and faithfully, were not strikers. They were summarily deprived of their employment for the sole reason that they were members of a union. The intention of the company was to reopen the mills with non-union men. Anticipating trouble, the Carnegie managers, instead of appealing to the authorities for legal protection, employed a force of armed men to act as a garrison for the mills. This small army was placed in armored barges and brought to Homestead by the river. As they neared their destination, the men who had been locked out fired upon them and were met by a counterfire. A sort of battle took place, lasting for nearly two days and involving the use of cannon and of burning oil, with which the river was flooded. Seven of the Carnegie Army were killed and a much larger number wounded. The loss of their assailants was even greater. In the end, the men in the barges surrendered and were badly treated by a mob, and finally state troops were sent to Homestead and restored order by the establishment of martial law. In various ways, this incident was unfortunate for the Republicans. In the first place, here was a highly protected industry cutting down the wages of its workmen at the very time when Republican orators were proclaiming the blessings of the McKinley Bill. In the second place, the country beheld a very striking instance of the lawlessness of corporations. These great steel magnates, so said the Democrats, were acting precisely after the fashion of feudal barons, maintaining private armies, disdaining the protection of the law, and shooting down citizens without any legal warrant. The employment of armed men by corporations had already attracted the attention of Congress, and the bloody affair at Homestead made the private militia system exceedingly unpopular. Another cause of concern to the party in power was the condition of the national treasury. The billion-dollar Congress had not only wiped out the surplus, but had authorized expenses which it was practically impossible to meet. 
For the six months ending December 31, 1891, the Treasury had paid out $86 million less than was called for by the existing laws. This sum had not been paid for the excellent reason that the funds were lacking. The customs revenue had fallen off, expenses had increased, and now the government of the richest nation in the world was in the position of a hard-up debtor, postponing from day to day the payment of its bills and living, as it were, from hand to mouth. On the whole, then, the democratic chances seemed very good. Only in one state, but that a most important one, could danger be detected. This was in New York. Mr. Hill and his followers had returned from the National Convention in a sullen mood. They had been soundly beaten by the Cleveland element. Would they take their revenge upon Election Day? This was a question which perplexed the Democratic managers and most of all Mr. W. C. Whitney, who felt himself responsible for the result in his own state. The most dangerous element of opposition, as in 1884, was to be found in Tammany Hall. John Kelly had died and had been succeeded by Mr. Richard Croker, who now wielded a power far greater even than that of Kelly. Croker was an Irishman by birth who had been brought to the United States when he was two years old. He had been a machinist and then a fireman, and had gradually worked his way into local politics, advancing from one position to another, until in 1886 he became the head of one of the most formidable political organizations in the world. He was a man of immense force of character, illiterate but shrewd. In many of his personal traits, as in his physical appearance, he reminded one of General Grant, having the same taciturnity, the same grim doggedness of purpose, the same iron strength of will. The vote of New York City was in his gift, and he had been consistently opposed to Mr. Cleveland. Nevertheless, it was known that Tammany Hall was anxious not to be regarded as disloyal to the party. Years before, Croker had been accused of murder, and among his counsel had been Mr. Whitney. For him, ever since that time, Croker had entertained a kindly feeling. Upon this feeling, Mr. Whitney diplomatically worked until Croker agreed to meet his party's candidate and come, if possible, to an understanding. He not unnaturally supposed that Mr. Cleveland would give promises in exchange for Croker's own promise to make his men vote straight. Mr. Cleveland, however, showed no inclination for an interview with Croker. It was only as a personal favor to Mr. Whitney that he at last consented, and the three men with a second Tammany chief dined together in a private room at Mr. Whitney's house. When the political conversation began, Mr. Cleveland took a line that was most unexpected. Instead of suggesting conciliation and speaking smoothly, he squared his shoulders and gave Croker such a talk as he had never listened to before. He told him what he thought of Tammany Hall, of Tammany politics, and of Tammany men. As he towered above Croker, punctuating his remarks with heavy blows of his fist upon the table, he completely dominated the great boss, who in reply could merely iterate his hope that matters might be arranged between them. In the end, Mr. Cleveland said that what had happened in the past would not influence him in his future actions, and with this very meager concession Croker had to go away content. Mr. Cleveland, in fact, meant to win the presidency, if he won it at all, without giving pledges to any human being. Among the many interesting anecdotes then current regarding him, one of the most characteristic was told by a distinguished man of letters who had long been his intimate personal friend. There was a certain rich contractor, a Blaine Irishman, a liberal employer of labor, who, because of his own ancestry, was thought to have great influence with the Irish voters in New York. Just at that time, the Irish vote in New York was a very uncertain element in democratic calculations. 
Therefore, it occurred to the literary gentleman who happened to know the contractor very well that he might perhaps do his favorite candidate a good turn by bringing the two men into personal relations. So it came to pass that one evening they met in the poet's library, without the least suspicion on their part that the interview had been prearranged. After a few moments their host made some excuse for slipping out of the room. Returning at the end of half an hour, he found Mr. Cleveland and the contractor chatting very amicably together. A little later, the ex-president, having finished his call, departed. "'Well,' said the host, "'what do you think of him?' The contractor's face fairly glowed. "'Ah, sure,' said he, slipping into his native brogue. "'He's the greatest man I ever saw. "'He's a fine man, a grand man. "'He wouldn't promise to do one, D-blank-D, thing I asked him.' And from that time until election day, no one worked harder for Mr. Cleveland than the man who had failed to extort a single promise from him. The November election astonished Democrats, Republicans, and populists alike. Mr. Cleveland swept the country. Of course, the southern states were solidly for him, but in addition he carried all the doubtful states, Connecticut, Indiana, New Jersey, and New York, while to the amazement of the political prophets, California, Illinois, and Wisconsin gave him their electoral votes. Michigan cast five of its nine votes for him, and even Ohio, the home of Mr. McKinley, returned one Democratic elector. In the Electoral College, Cleveland and Stevenson had 277 votes against 145 for Harrison and Reed. Note 32, page 304. Even had Mr. Cleveland lost New York, the presidency would still have been his own. A very startling result of the election was the enormous strength displayed by the populace throughout the West. Not only did their candidate, General Weaver, poll more than a million votes, but he actually carried four states, Colorado, Idaho, Kansas, and Nevada, receiving also one electoral vote in Oregon and one in North Dakota. For the first time since the birth of the Republican Party, a third political organization was represented among the presidential electors. Note 33, page 305. It is true that the vote given to the populists was an exaggeration of their actual numbers, because in all but one of the states which they carried, the Democrats had made no nominations. But nonetheless, the election figures were indicative of an immense popular upheaval that was ominous for the future of the older parties. Meanwhile, Mr. Cleveland had won an extraordinary personal triumph. Disliked by all the politicians, nominated against the protest of his own state, and opposed by the powerful corporate interests throughout the country, he had, nevertheless, been carried into the presidency by a great spontaneous movement of the people themselves, who gave him their implicit confidence because they felt that in him they had found a leader courageous enough to defy coercion, and of moral fibre strong enough to resist those other influences which are only the more dangerous because insidious. He received the presidency for the second time, bound by no pledge save that contained in the declaration of his party to govern honestly, to reduce the tariff, and to curb the trusts. End of chapter 6